Good morning, everybody. Okay. Oh, yeah. I don't know about you, but hey, life is busy, isn't it? Crazy. I look back and now and I occasionally think, how did I ever, before, when I used to work, how did I ever find time to go out to work? It's so busy. Or perhaps it's just that, I don't know, I'm getting a bit older, procrastinating sometimes. I remember when I was a kid, one of my teachers said, Cunliffe, you'll never make anything. You never amount to much. You're a procrastinator. I told her, you wait. <laughs> the dad jokes are always best, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. I find really it's good to sit myself down and actively rehearse at times God's story. His long-term plan through the ages because it's as wonderful now as it ever was. And whilst I'm yet on this earth, I get encouraged by Psalm 115. There's a verse there, verse 16, which says, The heaven, the eternal himself holds. The earth he has assigned to man or to men. A lot of versions say given, but this, I like to use the word in some of the versions which says assigned, because he's got a plan for us. And that kind of starts me remembering that so complete and final was Adam's authority over this earth that he, not just God, had the ability to give it away to another. Listen to the words of Satan, Luke 4, verses 6 and 7, as he tempted Jesus. I will give you, I will give you this domain and its glory, for it has been handed to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. The part about the domain being handed over to him was true, and Jesus knew it. He even called Satan the ruler of this world no less than three times in John's Gospel. Are you realising that so complete and final was God's decision to do things on earth that through human beings that it cost him the incarnation to regain what Adam gave away? God had to become part of the human race. I remind myself that humans were and are forever destined to be God's link to authority and activity on the earth and that God chose from the time of the creation to work on the earth through us, not independent of us. And that even though God is sovereign and all-powerful, he needs and is waiting for us to work with him that he might bring about change. We've been singing about that change today, that God is working in Afghanistan, Iran, all these places. So when I'm constantly thinking, oh, this earth's in such a mess, I need to remind myself that it's not because God wills it to be, but because of his need to work and carry out his will 
people like us, you and me. Why else would he ask us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I'm encouraged knowing that our decisions and actions can and do influence both history and his story. Any inaction on my part won't, of course, nullify the atonement, but unfortunately it can help make the atonement ineffective for lost people. And that's a a responsibility which can be intimidating, yeah? Yet I also know that if we embrace God's incredible invitation to work hand in hand with him, toward the realisation of his redemptive purposes on earth, that that same responsibility can become an enjoyable privilege. And so these were the the kind of uh, thought processes which guided me into giving today's message. For those who like a handle, I've given it a title of Making It Count. Making It Count. And a subtitle of A Life Well Lived in Joshua's Day and in ours, because we've been studying the book of Joshua, haven't I? So A Life Well Lived in Joshua's Day and in ours. Now, from that title, I might be thinking, David, why bother looking into Joshua's Old Testament day when we can learn all that we need for this life well lived in today's society straight from the New Testament. So let me start by giving you three reasons why it's good to study both the Old and the New Testament as a way of getting the whole picture. First, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 16 says, all, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Two, Paul's letter to the Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 8, tells us that Jesus Christ, God, is the same yesterday, today and forever. And three, once we study this book, our Bible, from the beginning through, we start to realise that bigger picture of what God is up to and see that the person of Jesus doesn't just feature in the, in the New Testament, but that his presence is interwoven throughout the whole of the Old Testament pages as well. And I love the Old Testament because the Old Testament really is a a picture book. And the wonderful thing is that for virtually every New Testament principle, uh, there's an Old Testament picture or story to give us understanding illustratively. And I don't know about you, but I need that because principles of theology can sometimes be challenging to understand, sometimes challenging to get a grasp of. And with that in mind, this the wonderful illustration of of Joshua's life uh, in the Old Testament setting of his day directly compares to the New Testament principles uh, which we've been looking at recently in the Apostle, Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And the Old and New Testaments together allow us better understanding of God's grand story and how we might enter into and take advantage of the Spirit-filled 
life by playing our interconnected part within that same story. So, before looking at how God wants to renew his kingdom amongst us in our day, here at OCC, through that remarkable vision which he gave to Pastor John, you, I think you all remember it, for Stratford and beyond these 130 areas, let's be encouraged by first looking way back at how it worked in the Old Testament days of Joshua, where we find recorded at least three instances where Christ met with him. The first, when he was 80 years of age, he'd already had 40 years of faithful, uh, spirit-filled service uh, behind him through that redemptive wilderness journey out of Egypt was when Christ gave Joshua a direct commission. We read the start of it, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 14 and 15, and this is what it says. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, thy days approach that thou must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tabernacle of the congregation that I may give him a charge. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of the congregation and the Lord appeared in the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud and the pillar of cloud stood over the door of the tabernacle. And then next, in Joshua 1, right at the beginning of Joshua, verses 1 to 3, we are told, Now, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise. In other words, therefore, go over this Jordan thou and all this people unto the land which I do give to them even to the children of Israel every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon that have I given unto you as I said unto Moses and then beyond that we have a third and a personal meeting of Joshua with Christ this time recorded in the last three verses of Joshua 5 and into the first three verses of chapter 6, confirming that even way back in, in um, Joshua's day, Jesus was the one always personally present as the saving commander who went before them, fighting on Israel's behalf every time Joshua went into battle. Here's what it says. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua approached him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. I have now come as commander of the Lord's army. Then Joshua bowed with his face to the ground in homage and asked him, What does my Lord want to say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did that. Are you having flashbacks to Moses and the burning bush? On to the first three verses of chapter 6. Now it says, Now Jericho was strongly fortified because of the Israelites. No one leaving or entering. 
Here we have it. The Lord said to Joshua, look, I have handed Jericho, its king, and its best soldiers over to you. It's about me. I go before you. March around the city with all the men of war, circling the city one time. Do this for six days. And we know the rest of the story, don't we? It was our Lord who won the victory, causing the walls to fall on the seventh day and the enemy to be in such disarray that Joshua with his army could then fulfil his partnership with Christ on the day and finish the job. Joshua, he understood that listening to God is essential to walking with God. And our choice as believers today remains the same as the one, I suppose, initially given to the children of Israel when they exited Egypt. Either stepping into the promised inheritance of God or wilderness living. As co-workers, it's about our listening to God and then walking obediently into the doing. In that meeting between Joshua and Christ, This was the same commander of the Lord's army who had worked his plan as a cloud by day and pillar of fire by night to redeem the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt through his co-worker Moses, who he also gave the law to. But just as the law without Jesus was never sufficient to bring them out of slavery, so it proved with the completion of that same redemption process and bring them now into the promised land. Redemption is always out of and into. That took the law plus Jesus as his co-worker Joshua, the one charged to take them in, soon found out. So in its entirety, the book of Joshua really is all about abiding in the presence of God and the redemptive uh, work of Jesus himself. Yes, at that time, using his chosen co-worker Joshua, who's encouraged to step into his inheritance, but also so that way down the line, we too, both individually and collectively, might be encouraged of the need to step into our own inheritance in Christ, so that we might co-partner with him in our day too. And in line with that, a few Sundays ago, I remember that our elder pastor Ian, some of you have met him today, Ian Hesketh, uh, used Joshua 1 and verse 3 to emphasise the necessity for us to, by faith, to align our hearts to God's, fully using the gifts each of us has been given to do that which our Lord has already promised and thereby to actively step into our own inheritance with Christ as co-workers. Just like with the promised land, it's all about possessing that which we've each been given title to by Jesus. And consequently, this word possess happens to be the key word in the whole of the book of Joshua. It appears over 20 times. And it's about us possessing God's faithfulness to his word about possessing God's faithfulness to his word. Okay, as a way of emphasising what Ian told us on that day, let's look again a little closer now at this same promise which God gave to Joshua 
when he commissioned him to take the people over the Jordan River uh, and into the Promised Land. Here's the verse again, Joshua 1, verse 3. God tells Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. Now, I used to think that this verse simply meant that wherever Israel walked or stepped, God was giving it to them. And yet, I knew that God had already marked off the perimeters of the inheritance of Israel for them. And it wasn't until I studied the book of Joshua more closely a few years later, taking opportunity to look um, into the Hebrew word for tread, that I finally got the message. In Hebrew, the word for tread is darak, D-A-R-A-K. And it involves the concept of violence or war. It's a word which comes, it came to be used for bending the bow when about to shoot an arrow. Apparently, it's still used in Israel today for the command, load your weapons. And Isaiah 63 verse 3, it's the same new word used symbolically, I suppose, of Christ treading the wine press in his anger to trample and overcome his enemies. So here God was saying to Joshua and Israel, every place that you are willing to load your weapons and take, I'm going to give it to you. Remember that the previous generation under Moses was afraid and wouldn't darak, wouldn't load their weapons and fight, and so God wouldn't give. Now, linked to this same verse, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, etc. Let me give you a further pretty amazing scripture now about Joshua, who was formerly called, uh, many of you know, Hashia, before Moses prophetically had it changed to Joshua, which is a Hebrew equivalent to the name Jesus, and how he, in this example, literally paints a profound picture for us New Testament believers of the partnership between Christ and the church. Now, I'm no Bible academic, but I like to think that God gave Hashir this new name of Joshua, this Jesus name, through Moses, specifically to paint for us this picture of Joshua as an Old Testament kind of foreshadow of Christ in the New Testament and it comes through this following story. It's a story which concerns the Gibeonites, one of these Canaanite tribes that Joshua and Israel were supposed to destroy. They had deceived the Israelites however into believing that they'd come from a far country so that they might enter a covenant with them because they were frightened of the Israelites. Joshua and the Israelites neglected to pray about this and were therefore deceived into a binding covenantal uh, agreement. Have you ever neglected to pray about, pray about something and then gone into trouble? I know I have. Anyway, though it was born of deceit, that covenant was still valid and made Israel an ally of Gibeon. Therefore, a few days later, when five armies marched against Gibeon, these Gibeonites called up Joshua 
for help based on the power of that covenant. And the story occurs, it's in chapter 10 of Joshua, verses 22 to 26. And as I said, also, should also give us a, a further understanding of this phrase, tread upon. It comes upon the story of the five, five of the most, I suppose, wicked kings who ever lived, who fled to hide in this cave when, after they were defeated by the Israelites, battling in defence of the Gibeonites. Listen to this, this is what it says. Then said Joshua, open the mouth of the cave, bring out these five kings unto me out of the cave. And they did so, and brought forth these five kings unto him out of the cave, the king of Jerusalem, king of Hebron, the king of Yarmut, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And it came to pass, when they had brought out these kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed, be strong and of good courage. He's passing on what God gave to Moses, what God gave to him now for his people. For thus, he says, shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. And afterwards Joshua smote them and slew them and hanged them on five trees and they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. And the following day they were incarcerated in that cave. You see, in that day, when victorious armies defeated an enemy army, they would demean the leader of that army by chaining him and dragging him before the victorious home crowd. Then they put him on the floor where the leader of the opposing army would place a foot on his neck or his head to tread upon that defeated leader before killing him. But here Joshua does something very different, something prophetic. Rather than putting his foot on the neck of the enemy, on the necks of the enemy, as was the custom, he, was, he had some of his generals do it. And in this action, Joshua couldn't have handed us a more literal picture of Christ, of us, the church, his army. This is what Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 refers to when it says of Christ, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, keeping this picture in mind, let's stay in the New Testament. Because when Ephesians 2 and verse 6 says, he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Christ is saying, it's not only my victory, it's yours. Under my authority and as my co-workers, exercise this same authority in individual situations, causing the literal fulfilment of it. Romans 16 and 20, verse 20, and the God of peace shall soon crush, crush Satan under your feet. Luke 10, 19, behold I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And all this is why Paul, right from the beginning of his letter to the Ephesians, addresses a group of believers living in Ephesus, rich beyond measure, 
um, in, in Jesus Christ and yet continuing to live like spiritual beggars. Why do they remain in spiritual poverty? Because up to that point, they remained ignorant of their true wealth. And so Paul starts to explain to them about their new position in Christ like this. It's in Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, the Anointed One, the Christ, who grants us every spiritual blessing in these heavenly realms where we live in the Anointed, in Christ. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what he's done for us. Wait a minute. They were living on earth. How could they, how could they live in the heavenly realms with him? Because of what Paul calls a former Old Testament divine mystery hidden from plain sight until our Jesus of the New Testament rose from the dead, which meant that now, as believers, they were in Christ. Whoa. That's how they and we were enabled to live in heavenly places with him. They now had Christ's spirit within them. Formerly the temple had been the place where believers met with God. Now Christ inhabited the temple of their body so that they, like us, might live as co-workers in Christ. Paul continues to tell these Ephesians, it's in chapter 6, verse 12, that the difference now, unlike in Joshua's time, was that they are not fighting against people made of flesh and blood, but against persons without bodies, the evil rulers of the unseen world, these, those mighty satanic beings and great evil princes of darkness who rule this word, world and against huge numbers of wicked spirits in the spirit world. These Ephesians too were now enabled to follow example, examples like Joshua's, this courageous man who simply possessed by faith the victory of Christ's promises to him in every battle which he fought knowing that his task was simply to remain courageous in each situation whilst trusting God Joshua obeyed stepped into his destiny and the rest is history and that's why we too at OCC in faith are going to be stepping into the destiny of our inheritance which God has for us here in Stratford-on-Avon. Not because of anything we've done but because of what he's done. Let me finish with Romans 12 verses 1 to 2. It's from, taken from the Message Bible. It's one John, uh, Pastor John uh, gave us a few weeks ago and it really resounded with me. Paul says... So, here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. God helping you take your ordinary everyday life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, 
fix your attention on God, you will be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Now, whether in Joshua's day or in our day, that's a relationship which makes a co-worker with Christ and leads to a well-lived life or a life well-lived. Amen.